Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Welcome to Migration Conversations. In today's episode, I speak with Frédéric Chabot, the Director of Health Promotion and Interim Executive Director with Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights, an organization that promotes health, well-being, and rights related to sexuality and reproduction in Canada and around the world. Action Canada provides direct support, referrals, and information to people who need it most, and partners with groups and organizations to advance access to abortion, stigma-free healthcare, gender equality, LGBTQ rights, and inclusive sex education. Fred and I are going to talk about access to abortion for undocumented or migrant persons in Canada. And Fred, I wanted to ask you first if you could tell me first about your work at Action Canada for sexual health and rights. Well, your intro was was great. Uh, it really captures the breadth of the work that we do uh, here and globally. So we have an office in Ottawa with um, with team members across the country. And then we also have an office in Geneva to do some UN engagement work uh, over there. So we're working to advance sexual and reproductive rights here and globally and uh, and do that in partnerships with many groups across, across the country. And mainly we're a policy and advocacy group, but as you described in your introduction, we have a couple frontline programs and one of them is um, to offer referral and support for people seeking abortion care in Canada. Thank you, Fred. That's such important work. And honestly, I don't know how many people know about the important work that you do. So it's great to hear about it. I wondered if you could give us some context for those of us not involved in public health. Many people might assume that the fight with regards to abortion rights has been won in Canada. But despite legal gains, there are still barriers related to accessing abortions. Can you speak about this in general? Absolutely. And it's especially relevant during COVID-19. So um, so as you mentioned, abortion was decriminalized in Canada 30 years ago, a bit over 30 years ago, so with the Morgan Teller decision in 1988. And that basically created a situation where abortion is treated as a medical procedure as opposed to a criminal matter. And so it's supposed to be regulated by professional bodies, um, uh, healthcare practitioners association, and just like any other medical procedure, basically. It doesn't mean that the stigma around abortion ha- 
miraculously lifted uh, 30 years ago. So that has meant there has been very little political will to address gaps in access. So abortion is is legally available in Canada at um, any point during the pregnancy, although that doesn't mean that it's, it's the case in terms of services being available. Um, in Canada, there's Healthcare providers that provide care up to around 23 weeks and six days. Um, most abortions happened in the first trimester, so in the first 12 weeks, but it is available after that in certain points of service in Canada. But points of service are far and few. Um, and so most of them are about 150 kilometers of the southern border uh, in major urban centers. They are really unevenly distributed across the country. So for example, Quebec, which is the one province that purposefully integrated abortion into primary care, so have about half of the points of service in the country. So of the 98 abortion uh, clinics and hospitals, half of them are in Quebec. Wow. And then after that, it uh, really varies. So in the prairies, uh, you have provinces with one, two, or three points of the service for the entire province. In BC and Ontario, there's more of them. Um, and then the Maritimes is also very poorly covered in terms of abortion, which effectively means that depending on your postal code, uh, you will have an easier or a harder time to access abortion. And then not to run on, but beyond just the geographical um, aspect of access issues in Canada, uh, the fact that people must travel outside of their communities because of that lack of points of service means that um, people have to pay out of pocket for travel expenses. So bus tickets, plane tickets, hotels, if they have children or elders that they're taking care of, they have to figure out care for them, they have to take time off work, especially if you're traveling to a center, for example, in Montreal or Vancouver, Toronto, and it's for a higher gestational time in the pregnancy. Sometimes the procedures are two, three days, so it's a significant time away from your own community and support networks. Um, so that adds to the difficulty because it means that on top of your postal code, what's inside of your bank account actually matters for your ability to realize that right you have to that medical procedure and then that's not even talking about those who are not documented and doesn't don't have access to medical insurance um, to access health care here in Canada so that adds a level of difficulty so if you are in a rural community in the north outside of urban centers if you are undocumented if you are young if you don't have the money to travel outside of your community or the ability to take time off, then um, access to abortion is quite complicated in our country still. Yeah, this really is interesting because I think for especially a lot of our listeners are law students. For a lot of law students, when they read a decision, they think, wow, this is a great victory, um, something that Canada should be proud of. But really what matters is how things are um, implemented or what is meaningful access on a, on a practical level, you know, effective access. Absolutely, to... 100% true. Yeah, and so I think for a lot of people, they should really think about, you know, what does it mean now that when we recognize a legal right or 
a, a legal victory, how does that get translated on the ground? And so here, this is a perfect example of how 30 years later, as you said, um, there's still ongoing issues and meaningful and problematic issues with how we um, exercise that right to access legal abortion. Absolutely, and it's a very common procedure. So for those who may not know these statistics in Canada, about half of pregnancies are unplanned. Uh, and that we can we could chat for hours about the fact that access to contraception plays a huge role in that, access to comprehensive sexuality education. But it's still the reality that um, about half pregnancies are unplanned and about over half of those will end up with in an abortion. And so that amounts to about uh, 100,000 abortion a year in Canada. And, and that number is, in, is uh, going down over the years actually because of more and more access to services. Uh, but still it's a significant number. And it means that about one in three person who can get pregnant will have an abortion in their lifetime. And we can't say that of many medical procedures. It's very common. It should be treated as such, and it has not. And so it's definitely the reality that we can't explain the lag in access with, without anti-choice uh, sentiments. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make that, you know, people think that healthcare is distributed or provided in an equitable manner, and really it's more complicated than that. And especially, I think it's really alarming to think about the fact that there's such a huge disparity between the urban and rural, and as you said, between indigent persons or persons who might have other access issues, just even getting information. I just think about the administrative work to do the research. Mm -hmm. You're already stressed out about an unwanted pregnancy and to do that kind of work to figure out for yourself as a young person or as oh, a person. It's incredible, incredible yeah. the weight that is put on people to have to figure out. It would be like if some, some your doctor announces to you that you have um, an issue with your heart and you need a procedure and then they tell you, you know what, Google this, you'll find where you'll find where the provider you need is and then figure out how to get there. Yeah, and then pay up front because yeah. <laughs> there's might... no pathway to service. And that is especially true for certain populations. Wow. Thank you, Fred. Um, you and I were recently chatting in a park with our kids running around. This is how this conversation has come up, which is always wonderful to interact with the community and learn about these things and also to realize the importance of other people's work in your community. Um, but you, you told me about the Access Line program that Action Canada provides to offer 24-7 support, information and referrals on sexual and reproductive health. And you also told me about the trends that you're seeing through the calls that are coming through this phone line. Can you tell me what information your um, organization has started receiving about undocumented and migrant women in particular? Absolutely. So the Access Line program is a program that we inherited from Canadians for Choice, um, which is one of the organizations that formed uh, Action Canada when we merged uh, in 2014. So it's been going on for many, many years at this point. It was thought of as a phone line that people could call 24-7 the whole year um, if they needed support or information around sexual and reproductive health uh, issues. Mainly, we get calls about abortion because this is the service that is the most difficult to locate, uh, the one that people have the most questions about because there's so much misinformation. So we receive around, at this point, five or 6,000 calls a year um, during COVID. So since the pandemic, it's 
averaging around 500 calls a month, which is like a huge jump in the number of calls that we're getting, which means that we're talking to a significant number of people in Canada who are looking for um, abortion services, which means that we have a golden opportunity to understand what barriers to abortion look like, who's looking for abortion, what does it mean um, to try to access it from different locations, social location and geographical location. So it, it does give us uh, good information in terms of policy asks and, and everything. But in the day-to-day, -day, it means talking to people who simply are facing an unplanned pregnancy and need um, to access a service. So we provide uh, logistical help. So we have a full directory with all the abortion providers in the country. Uh, we can connect people with them. And then after that, every single call is a lot of logistical support because it was very evident from early on when we took on that program that if we just gave an address to people, it didn't actually resulted in the outcomes that we wanted. So it was, it became very evident that a big part of our work was to offer like fulsome, uh, fulsome logistical support for people. And we also have an abortion fund. So one of the national abortion funds so there's it's the main one in canada so people call us and if they they are facing financial barriers to accessing services we can provide help so we um we are absolutely seeing trends so before the pandemic i would say that the main three populations that uh, face the hardest uh circumstances when trying to access abortion were very young people uh, because of the lack of youth-friendly services, sometimes waiting longer um, when, you know, suspecting they're pregnant or not knowing they're pregnant, not knowing what to do, not knowing who to talk to, if they could talk to their parents or to supports in schools, um, and having access to much less resources. And so that's definitely a population. It's not huge, but it's a significant kind of trend. The second would be people facing uh, constant emergencies. So people in situation of poverty, homelessness, substance misuse, uh, mental health crises, people with um, who were incarcerated and so would have trouble kind of crossing borders because of um, criminal records or, or, or the likes. And then the third and um, most significant population that we're seeing, and that's especially true during the pandemic, uh, are undocumented women and people. Um, and so that was true before. It was already one of the main group of people that we were supporting. And it has certainly ramped up uh, during the pandemic. I thought it was so interesting, too, that you raised the issue of logistical support. I think that's a lot of things that, for example, law students don't realize is part of the work of sometimes supporting people. And it's so true that some people, you know, even something as asking them to get a criminal record check or filling out a piece of paper, sometimes you end up just helping them do those things because they need to get done to get to a certain point. And I can only imagine the kind of work that needs to be done in order to actually bring someone to an appointment or bring them mm -hmm. to a clinic or help them fill out the forms in order to access services. So I think 
Absolutely. It's a huge part of our work because especially interprovincial travel and then particularly if people need to travel to the United States. So this is maybe a part where um, like a key piece of of the picture here is that when people are beyond a certain gestational time and that lowered during the pandemic, people have to travel to the United States to access services. So either to Washington or Colorado or other states where services are available. And so that means everything that it means about crossing borders. So you need a passport, you need a visa, you need, you know, there's there's lots that is needed there uh, or that could put people at risk, like if they're actually crossing or or it just means that they can't go and access care. So that's def- definitely like something that we've seen. And I'm sure that's been very different now with the um, pandemic, some people are able to cross, but then the question is, can they come back into Canada, right? Absolutely. So that's definitely something that we've seen. So in terms of how we've monitored the trends since the pandemic and the lockdown, so since March, not only have like our line, our phone line has exploded in terms of calls we're getting and the situations are more intense, you know, there's more and more severe domestic abuse. There's, um, people who are more advanced in their pregnancies, people who are unable to access like any kind of care and who are really, really anxious. So it has definitely amped up um, the level of difficulty of the calls that we get. But in terms of trends, what we've seen is that abortion was prioritized as an essential service at the beginning. Like we heard that from healthcare providers, from ministers, from uh, policymakers, abortion remains an essential medical procedure. But that happened in a way that that did have consequences. So it meant that abortion was prioritized in many settings at the expense of other care. So for example, abortion clinics are key players in their communities around contraceptive care, around STI, so sexually transmitted infection, treatment and testing. And all of those services were put on hold to be able to have the few safe abortion appointments, you know, with a lot of like time in between appointments, people waiting in the parking lot instead of inside the clinic. And so we've had less abortion appointments available. These other services completely vanished during like most of the last six months. Um, And then what we've seen is that hospitals and other points of service for abortion actually Um, restricted access to their services to their region because of COVID. So they, when they had visitors from all over Canada before, now, for example, the London Science Centre said, we are only seeing people from London. But that's one of the main centres treating abortion up to a higher gestational time with complicated medical histories. So anyone who's high risk used to go to that centre and now it's completely block to Canadians that are not in that region specifically. So effectively, access to abortion was reduced during COVID. And so starting from a much lower time in pregnancy, we've had to send people to the United States. And the United States, as I'm sure everyone's aware, is a COVID hotspot. It's unchecked. It's scary to even send people there. And the borders are closed, so we have to send people with a letter saying why they're crossing the border because it's allowed to, to cross for a medical service. But then you're at the mercy of border agents who could say uh, who are anti-choice and just would re- reject that person crossing. Yes, and we need to find doctors who sign those forms. We need 
to make sure that the person's in a province that actually covers the the procedure costs uh, because it's technically it's a covered medical procedure but there's definitely provinces that are have a pathway to that and there's other provinces that do not and explicitly do not even though it's a violation of the Canada Health Act. This is so alarming to hear and you're right like one of the things that we talked about in our class earlier this semester is about the power of the discretionary decision of border officers at the border and um, you're right you get one border officer that might not like what they see in a letter accompanying a woman crossing the border and that's the end of the story out that's it and we as you've mentioned that's you know that's without mentioning like this kind of smaller quote-unquote like issues of people seeing their flights cancelled their hotel canceled, the inability to access doula care uh, because everyone's in lockdown. So, Or maybe they've gotten symptoms and then they can't travel. Oh, absolutely. That has happened, like in Canada and people who, who must travel. Um, and so it has created some, some really uh, complicated scenarios for people who got stuck in the U.S., who then get home, have to quarantine without their support certain, like network of people around them. Like incredible complications that you know were not necessarily anticipated at the beginning yeah well and then also sometimes you would have a friend come with you to do a procedure but then you might not have that support with you so exactly. undergoing a medical procedure without alone, anyone you know mm-hmm. it's very <laughs> i can't imagine um so this is an alarming trend and i guess could you elaborate a little bit about um how undocumented and migrant women are um impacted by this absolutely so i think the most of everyone we've worked with and so usually our line like we pride ourselves we work with partners across the country we have partners in the united states who are extraordinary as well like we we make use of several funds um and and other charities who do work across canada and we are very resourceful in terms of patching together plans for people. And so um, up until I would say March, it was very rare that people would not end up accessing the services that they needed. And then since March, I would say that we had to break the news to about 17 or 18 people that we couldn't help them, that there was no services available to them. And so they had to either continue uh, an unwanted pregnancy and give birth um, or um, or seek services on their own terms, like without the supervision of the healthcare um, system. And so obviously facing higher risks of complications and, um, and everything that we can imagine comes with that, like in terms of like injuries, in terms of possible death, in terms of, you know, who knows what. Um, and of those 18 people, 100% of them were undocumented people. And so this is definitely the population that has suffered the most from the new restrictions. And that's... Um, that's are, one aspect of it. So are they being, uh, is the reason why they can't have the service is tied to their their status? It is because right now, most abortions beyond a certain gestational time, people have to travel to the States because of the lockdowns that were happening everywhere, which meant that even in places, so uh, before the pandemic, we've had a couple of hospitals that did work with us uh, when we had undocumented 
callers who, who needed abortion and we were able to kind of broker spots and hospitals that don't necessarily offer those services to the public but because of the their inability to cross the borders they would accept to see those patients and we would work with midwives who could actually take them on because midwives have the ability not in every province but in some province to take on undocumented patients and be paid because obviously one of the issues healthcare providers getting paid um you know kind of hinging like that means are they offering those services or not um and so we had a bit of a system going on uh behind the scenes and those hospitals redirected all their resources towards covid and also clamped down on services so they're they were suddenly not able to see those patients and definitely people who we would maybe have had the ability either to have them seen in Canada because there were places with higher gestational limit that could see them or could arrange something for travel depending on their specific um, like like immigration situation. That was all out the window. And so that um, became really evident from the very beginning that this is the population that was going to see the most uh, issues with access with hospitals, clinics, and provincial lines being closed up. And so that's definitely part of it. And then in terms of other issues that we've seen, it's people who are tied. Oh, I must say, the reason why like this population also is often needing like later abortion care is also linked to their immigration status because we're talking about people who um, may get insurance at one point, but there's a delay of like three months or four months, depending on the employer. Are they filing the paperwork in time? Are they dangling, you know, the paperwork above their head and and not like filing it? And so people who are pregnant um, don't have their insurance or have it way later in their pregnancy, which means that they delayed their access to care effectively. So if there's a delay of three, four months, then you're talking about a much more advanced pregnancy if the person was undocumented. Or you're or you're in a situation where the person, like I've seen this with callers who are live-in caregivers and their employers are not letting them leave the house. Like they have, um, they, they have to find a way to basically get care and it's quite complicated because of the relationship with the employer and because of how the employer has a lot of power over them because of their immigration status. And so we've talked through abortions with people who were not allowed to travel, were not able to leave their employers, their status being tied to them. And then there's also issues with spouses who sponsor and who are people who are in abusive situations because of that and with spouses that don't file the paperwork that uh, prevent people from leaving the house so we've had clients for example who had free births like people who gave birth like without any kind of interaction with the healthcare system finding themselves pregnant again and calling us to either uh, support them in finding an abortion provider or midwives who could support them for their birth so both on on all ends of like prenatal care um being left without any kind of supports and so like 
basically getting a glimpse of the struggles that these people are facing like because of their immigration status preventing them from accessing services that we take for granted um, as people in, in Canada, like with citizenship. Yeah, I was just going to say that you and I both have kids, and I would say that I've experienced the gold standard in medical care when it came to prenatal and the birthing process. And to think that there are people within our community that don't have the access to the same care mm-hmm. that's here, that's available. There's, there's really, it's not a matter of the fact that it's just not here or it's not well developed or it's a matter of how certain people are only able to get it simply because of the status that they have. Absolutely. And it's, you know, like it's absolutely like in terms of outcomes, like health outcomes, like it makes such a difference for both kids who are born, for people who are seeking those services, for like it's it's absolutely abhorrent because you're right like it's all there those services are available healthcare providers for the most part want to offer that care and we are facing you know structural barriers um for for people to access healthcare that they have a right to yeah and so this you know comes back to this issue of status for all and uh i wondered if you could talk about the campaign that's being uh, pushed by a number of advocates mm-hmm. and organizations it's hashtag status for all and you know it is as you said um, the driving force for why people might not be accessing all kinds of services but in particular in this conversation we're talking about healthcare. so can you describe a little bit about the campaign and also what your organization's role is in this campaign yes so it's a campaign that's uh, that's led by the Migrant Rights Network. Uh, they're absolutely fierce and, and great. Uh, they're pushing for a very precise agenda. So they have developed their demands uh, in collaboration with migrant workers from across the country. So they have organized on the ground um, with with workers from all sorts of different sectors, from from live-in caregivers, um, people in sex work, uh, people on farms, people in, in uh, any kind of food business, so meat packing, et cetera, fruit picking. Um, and so they, they have a vast network of people who are speaking out on on what it means to be undocumented, um, on what it means to be either or in precarious immigration situations, like with the temporary foreign worker program, or uh, in other kind of visa situations, or even sponsorship, or when we're talking about family reunification. And so from their organizing and from their speaking with people from so many different walks in, of life in this situation, they have boiled down to what would be the most impactful uh, intervention for people to access their human rights and including their access to health care because people have a right to health. And so for us as a, as a health-focused uh, and a human rights organization, of course, this is an angle that is like very real for us because we help people every day who are not able to access healthcare services to support their reproductive in sexual health. And so when we saw this campaign for us, it was uh, obviously a priority for us to support to support that uh, very actively because when we're talking um, of reproductive rights and when we're talking about abortion access, it goes beyond the rhetoric of just being pro-choice because yeah, of course, like we have a choice, like you can have, you can pursue a pregnancy or not, but if we leave it at that, 
it leaves so many people among us without an actual ability to act on that choice. So in Canada, legally, we have the choice. And in practice, many of us don't. And so talking about abortion access to us means um, advocating for migrant rights. And in this case, it means talking about permanent status for all. On arrival, it means family reunification. It means protection from uh, potential power abuses uh, when people are in precarious immigration situations that ties them to employers, to spouses, to or or just leave them without any kind of societal supports or access to to services. So we are a signatory of that campaign. Um, we bring it up in every single meeting we have with policymakers. So this is one of our number one priorities. Uh, when they ask us about abortion access, um, we talk about status for all as the first step to address one of the biggest gaps in access in Canada. It also means uh, beyond bringing that up, you know, with the federal government, with because um, as a policy and advocacy organization, we have those opportunities. So we are on national tables with ministers, uh, with the PMO, with so we are using those opportunities to to talk about that campaign. Um, but the other piece of it for us is to educate and engage our supporters, and including. Um, our clinical partners, so people who are working in sexual health centers and abortion clinics, I think for us it's a priority to ensure that this is a live and dynamic conversation among our sector. So not just outward kind of advocacy, but also working with our own sectors internally with our own team about why this is one of our biggest priority uh, priorities when we're talking about abortion access advocacy. Yeah, I think it, this has been very illuminating because a lot of the coverage in relation to status for all in the media has been, you know, the effect of essential services and uh, the use of temporary foreign workers in, you know, essential services, the kinds of abuses and um, lack of protection for these people in various sectors such as healthcare. Yeah employment in the healthcare sector, employment in the agriculture sector, but I think what has not been really talked about is the effect of access to healthcare and in particular, you know, healthcare that is gendered, you know, mm-hmm. that are affecting women who need access to abortions. And as feminists, I find this so um, important to remember that there's this intersection always, you know, whenever there is going to be, you know, you see the cracks, you see the gaps in our system in relation to how the pandemic has made it more amplified. But, you know, the mm-hmm. intersections also, the gendered implications sometimes get lost in that. Right? Absolutely. That's so right. And and one thing that we know from our global work is that in time of public health crises or human t- humanitarian crises, uh, reproductive and sexual rights needs don't go down. Like they go up, like they become more dire, more urgent. Um, So, for example, during COVID, it would have been easy to say all of our priority, all our eyes should be on the pandemic response, but the pandemic response in our eyes need to center reproductive and sexual rights because those are key to bodily autonomy, to human rights being realized, and, and as you mentioned, to the very gendered nature of how people will be impacted by the pandemic. And we've seen it on a, on some level, like people talk, to the quote-unquote she session. So more women are losing jobs. Uh, women are 
impacted harder. We're seeing backtracking in terms of equality in the workplace, like women are leaving the workplace in higher numbers. Um, our sectors are more impacted. So the care sector um, is definitely more impacted. We're also on the front line of the pandemic, like we're nurses and caregivers and um, working in uh, supported housing and or working in retail, working. So we are more exposed to COVID. We are working on the front line. We are losing our jobs. Our kids are at home and we are expected to do more caregiving, more housework. And then we need to think about sexual and reproductive rights. Like you're right that it's missing from the conversation that, and this is what it looks like. And this is how it intersects with migrant rights. Like at this point is that the people, the hardest hit are absolutely uh, those who are undocumented and other marginalized populations. Like it's not, you know, a lot of us have resources to mitigate the impacts of, um, of the pandemic and it's been hard I can say it for myself, like it's been hard, but I have a lot of resources to to mitigate the impact, but not everyone does. And so for us, it was very important to bring that back in because we're talking about, you know, lack of access to services around abortion, which is key to, to bodily autonomy and like choosing your own destiny and life, you know, like life outcomes and health outcomes. And we're talking about higher rates of domestic violence and intimate partner violence and like less services, less access to services. And that's also especially true for undocumented people in, in or in complicated immigration situations. Yeah, this is very fascinating. And I think the work that you guys are doing should be applauded in bringing this to light. I mean, there's no other way of knowing unless... <laughs> you had conversations with people, right? And so this is, you know, an important piece that you're um, doing this work. And it sounds like it's very ad hoc, but it's very grassroots. And I feel like a lot of movements in the migrant rights sector is always, we're, we're always trying to do, pick up the pieces, provide support where, where needed, do the logistical work, but also it's very grassroots and community-based. So, well, cause there's so little resources dedicated to that organizing. Like it's, it's very scrappy. Like it's people coming together and, and doing that work and, and it's not a sector that is funded or the kind of advocacy that receives structural support to happen, but still like the the strength and the creativity and and um, like the the smarts of this movement is inspiring for sure. And this is something that we're excited to to participate in and to follow because it will have an impact it is having an impact it's changing the conversation around um, what it means to be a migrant in Canada what it means to be undocumented or how our systems are are really impacting people's human rights and access to to health care um, so I'm so glad for this conversation too like I hope I hope there is more of a global vision for different movements so people working on, on migrant rights people working for reproductive rights people working for environmental justice like we're we're all in this together. Like in the more conversations we have, the more we'll see that actually we share the same opponents. We share the same goals. Like we, we have so much overlapping. Um, and so I'm glad you invited me to come and chat. Well, thank you so much. And um, I just wanted to say that um, 
it's amazing that a park conversation could actually <laughs> lead to such a rich conversation, but also um, to highlight, you know, I guess a missing piece in the conversation about how Canada has been responding to the pandemic, specifically mm-hmm. in relation to migrant rights and to protecting the health of migrants during this very challenging time. Um, I just wanted to give you a last opportunity to um, tell our listeners, um, how can people support the cause, uh, support Status for All, support Mm -hmm. Action Canada if they're interested in this issue? Yes, so I think to go check out the Status for All campaign is a good start. Right now there is 350 organizations that have signed the call for Status for All and about 8,000 individuals. And so I think to have law profs and law students who are joining the cause, who are understanding, like bringing their 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 understanding to the cause and their showing their support openly will continue to strengthen um, this tidal wave, I hope, of support that will come and change policy. And then after that, for Action Canada, you can come and visit our website. Uh, I think that's where you can find many of uh, the conversations we're having to connect movements, to connect uh, the dots between different issues. And um, if you want to support our fund, you can become a donor for sure. Uh, Every dollar goes to very practical things like paying for bus tickets, paying for meals, paying for hotels of real people like around us that need access to healthcare. And so if you do have a couple dollars to spare, please support uh, the Status for All and Migrant Rights Network and Action Canada because we're both on the front line uh, right now trying to uh, ensure that people can, can see their human rights realized. Thank you so much, Frederic. Yeah, thanks. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow June Gleed. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.